1962, American Don Richardson and his wife Carol went to live among the Sawi people of Irian Jaya. The Sawi people were pre-literate. They knew nothing about iron. They used stone tools and also stone weapons with which to fight and kill one another. For they were headhunters and cannibals. Humanly speaking, it was a risky if not foolhardy enterprise. Not least because they carried with them their baby son Steve in their arms. However, the Richardsons believed that God had called them to live among the Sawi in order to share the good news about his son Jesus Christ. It was no easy lifestyle, no easy task to learn the language and understand the culture. And as they did so, they encountered difficulties they had never anticipated or been taught to deal with. When they were able finally to share the story of Jesus in the Sawi language, they noticed that the Sawi people were particularly interested in the story of the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And at the point where Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus with a kiss, they shouted with glee and clapped for Judas. For in Sawi culture, treachery was their highest virtue. And the more subtle and unexpected it was, the greater it was appreciated. How on earth could the Richardsons communicate their perspective and communicate the true message of Jesus Christ? The opportunity came in a way they didn't expect. One day, the tribe up the river, as often happened, the tribes begin to fight with one another. The tribe up the river attacked the tribe where Don and his family were living. For weeks, they fought with each other and killed one another. Finally, Don said to the leaders of the tribe where they lived, if you don't stop fighting, we will leave your tribe. It was a serious threat to them. They enjoyed the prestige of having this family living with them. They liked Carol's medical care and Don's steel implements. And the chief of the tribe realised they had to pay for the price of peace. One day Don watched as the warriors of the warring tribe formed a line opposite each other. And the chief of his tribe went over to his wife and took from her arms her newborn son. She sank to the ground, wailing in uncontrollable grief. Then the chief walked down the line of his warriors, and each of them put their hands on this little firstborn child. And then with determination and resolve, the chief walked across the open space between the two warring factions. He stood face to face with the enemy chief and placed his son in the enemy's arms. And with the baby in his arms, the enemy chief walked down the line of his warriors. In full view of the father and the father's tribe, each enemy warrior then placed his hands on the baby boy. Then the warriors turned and disappeared into the bush with the infant. The baby was gone, never to be returned again to the grieving parents. The Richardsons wondered what the ceremony meant. One day the chief said to them, 
what it was all about. This is what he said. I offered my son as the peace child for our tribes. As long as my son lives, there will be peace between our tribes. If he dies, war will resume. Anyone who kills a peace child will himself be killed. And as Don pondered the significance of this ceremony, in a flash of insight, he realized that the chief was giving him the cultural key that would open the Sawi people to the truth about Jesus Christ. He explained to them that Jesus was God's peace child, come to earth to make peace between God and mankind. And the peace child became a cultural bridge, or what is technically called a redemptive analogy. It's described in a best-selling book, if you've never read the book. There's also a film about it. To explain a key Christian doctrine. The doctrine is called reconciliation. And this evening I briefly, it's a vast subject and a wonderful subject, but I want very briefly and simply just to focus on it this evening by way of preparation as we come around the Lord's table. To help those of us who've maybe never really understood this, maybe you're finding a way in the Christian faith, and to help those of us who know all about it to appreciate once again the wonder of what God did for us when he gave his own son as a peace child. And this theme is found in numerous places in the New Testament, one of them being the reading that we read in 2 Corinthians 5, which presents us with the challenge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The challenge of the good news of Jesus Christ is simply this. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The word gospel, used to describe the Christian message, means good news. And reconciliation reminds us that the good news of the gospel is peace with God. But in order to understand and appreciate this good news, we need to begin with the bad news. This evening I have good news for you and bad news. The good news is peace with God, but the bad news we need to begin with is war with God. So let's start there and then we'll come to the good news. We'll begin with the bad news, then the good news. War with God. What is the greatest need of our world today? Listen to the news bulletins and the focus is on the breakdown of relationships between human beings, between nations. This week, how will the United Nations cope with Iran resuming its nuclear program? Between religions, not least between militant Islam and our nominally Christian Western nations between communities seen only tragically in the racist murder of an 18-year-old boy in Liverpool, between family members, you only need to turn to the newspapers and someone has killed someone in someone's family. Human beings simply just don't get along very well. Reconciliation is needed. Reconciliation between people. But all of these are symptoms of a much deeper problem. The real problem is that we are estranged from God, separated from the one relationship for which we were made and programmed. Friendship with God, what the Bible calls fellowship with God. And unless that is right, nothing else will be right. Our primary need, our greatest need, is reconciliation with God, not just between people, but between people and God. Now let's just backtrack a moment and ask some interesting questions and important questions. Why is this reconciliation necessary? When did we fall out with God? Who was to blame? How did it happen? 
And to discover that, as with most things, you need to go back to the beginning. And there's a book in the Bible called the Book of Beginnings. It's called Genesis, which means beginning. Uh, the story begins with God creating the world. And human beings are made of the crown of God's creation, made in God's image. And an integral part of this image is that we are made to know God in Genesis 1, and so it's described as the man and woman walking with God, enjoying a personal relationship with God. The man is made to relate with other human beings, and so Eve is, re- is created from him to relate to him, to com- compliment him. Compliment him, not compliment him. Uh, the Garden of Eden describes a state of complete harmony in the created order and in interpersonal relationship. All is well between God and the man and the woman and between the man and the woman themselves. Unfortunately, as we know, it's the case from history, from our own personal experience, this is no longer the case. The cause of, the human, the, of this conflict is human rebellion. You can read the story in Genesis 3 if you've never read the Bible. Adam and Eve are taken in by a tempter who comes along. He tempts them to doubt God and God's good intentions. And so believing that they can become like God, they disobey God, doing the one thing he commanded them not to do. And the sad and inevitable consequences follow as God had warned them. It's encompassed by the word death which enters the world. The consequences of the conflict is death. Now death is not the immediate cessation of life. When Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit and eat it, they do not fall down dead as though it was cyanide. You know, ten seconds, boom, now they fall. Yes, they will ultimately die, but the seeds of death are sown by their disobedience. Instead of experiencing harmony in Eden, they are driven from Eden. Everything changes. Everything is spoiled. The relationship between human beings, between human beings and the creation, and most serious of all, our relationship with the God who made us, as they are barred from the ultimate source of life, alienated from God. The end of Genesis chapter 3 puts it starkly. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Before too long, the first murder takes place as Cain kills his brother Abel. Human history that follows is one of conflict within homes, within communities, between tribes and nations. Even creation itself is ruined by man's rebellion against God, by the fact that we're at war with God. Now, this is the bad news and the present situation. Let me summarise it with two statements which may surprise you unless you know the Bible well. And I make them on the basis of not my opinion, but on what the Bible, which we believe to be God's word, says. The first statement is this. We are God's enemies. We are God's enemies. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Colossae, describes what they were like before they came to faith in Christ. He says, once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your mind, minds because of your evil behaviour. In his commentary on this verse, Dick Lucas from All Souls in London puts it like this, such are the appalling consequences of the fall that people everywhere are known by a mentality that is naturally antagonistic to the truth of God. The unbeliever's normal reaction to the view that this verse takes of him, that's Colossians 1.21, will prove the point. <coughs> Antagonistic, please note, not merely apathetic. We deceive ourselves if we imagine that human apathy is the problem and not deep down an enmity which resists the claims of God. 
Now if you take the God of the Bible seriously, then this will become apparent. Or there is a solution to reject the God of the Bible, to invent a God in your own image who you feel more comfortable with. That's like telling the consultant you don't accept his diagnosis of your serious heart condition but prefer your own theory of indigestion. Another great writer, theologian, Jim Packer writes, Sinful man is opposed to God and everything that is of God. It is his nature to disobey God's law, to disbelieve his gospel, to grudge him service, to chafe under his restraint. If sinners could dethrone God, repeal his laws, cancel his judgment, they would. Men are born rebels against their maker. Man in sin is at inveterate enmity with God. But if that seems hard to accept, Notice the other side. What does God feel about all this? Not only are we God's enemies, but we are also under God's wrath. God is holy. Cannot look on sin. He is opposed to it and those who continue in it. Writing again to Christians, this time in the city of Ephesus, about their former state, the Apostle Paul reminds them, we were by nature, sinful nature, objects of God's Wrath. Now again, many theologians and writers don't like the idea of God's wrath. They've done all they can to expunge it from the record, to explain it away. But if you take the Bible seriously, this is a fundamentally important point. Now of course this is not some pagan idea of God flying off the handle at the slightest excuse. Packer again writes, God's wrath against sin is not a fitful flicker, but a steady blaze. Not a mark of an uncertain temper, but an aspect of the consistent righteousness of the just judge of all the earth. Now, if this is true, it is a matter of the utmost seriousness. No matter how many enemies you may have this evening, maybe you have got quite a few, maybe you've got none. It is infinitely worse to have God against you. And that is why Jesus warned us to fear God. People today talk only exclusively about the love of God, which is a wonderful theme we'll come to in a moment. But there is a fear of God, which is a healthy fear. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. That is the one side of reconciliation. The bad news is that we're at war with God. And only if we really understand this will we appreciate and see the need for the good news. Now the good news I'm happy to turn to. The good news is peace with God. Although sometimes we may deny it. Deep down human beings are instinctively aware that we are estranged from God. We do something to try and rectify the situation. In our society we do what we regard as good deeds which we hope will count with God and appease him. Many societies, people make offerings of food or an animal. In terrible cases, even a human sacrifice to try and pay for their sin and to please God. But what we need to recognise is that reconciliation on our part is impossible. It is something only God can bring about. We'll never be able to pay what we owe. Our debt is too great. It's growing by the day. Our sins need to be forgiven or covered. The Bible, theologians have a word for this. It's based on a a Greek word in the Bible, it's the word expiation. Our sin paid for. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. But there is an equally great problem. 
about which we can do nothing? How can we ever satisfy the justice of God and avert his righteous anger? In all of our quarrels, there is always faults on both sides, aren't there? We always say there's two sides to every argument. But in our quarrel with God, the fault is all on our side. How amazing then that the offended party, God himself, should take the initiative to put things right. The Apostle John writes in his first letter, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's 1 John 4 verse 10. And if you've got an NIV, the footnote explains what that means. It says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away our sins. Now, to use technical terms again, not only must there be expiation, our sin paid for, there must be propitiation. God's wrath must be averted. Now, again, you'll find increasingly today, this is a very unpopular idea. It's caricatured as a pagan concept. But it's found clearly in the New Testament. And it differs markedly from all human ideas of propitiation. Uh, Dick Lucas helpfully writes again, Propitiation in the New Testament does not deny the love of God, as in pagan religions, but rather demonstrates it. We need an advocate with the Father, just because he is also our judge. We have an advocate with the Father, just because in great mercy God has come to us in Christ to provide one. The Christian doctrine of reconciliation is free from all pagan misrepresentations in that the one who requires to be reconciled is the one who carries out the work of reconciliation. Now here's the good and amazing news. What a price was paid for our reconciliation. In the greatest cooperative endeavour the world has ever seen, God the Father and God the Son worked together to reconcile the world through the death of God the Son, through his death. In God's great plan of love, God not only gave his son for our world, he gave him up to death. He died not only so that our sin might be forgiven, but so that God's justice might be satisfied and his wrath might be averted, so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might know an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with him. Another writer, the Congregational Minister, a man called P.T. Forsyth, who wrote extensively on the cross of Christ at the beginning of the 20th century, puts it like this. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. It is God's wrath which needs to be propitiated. It is God's love which did the propitiating. God, God's feeling towards us never needed to be changed, but God's treatment of us, God's practical relation to us, that had to change. He forgave us and welcomed us home. And it is at the cross of Jesus that God's wrath and God's mercy meet. Another writer comments on this paradox. The resulting paradox that God reconciles those he recognises up to the moment of reconciliation as enemies is no greater than the command, love your enemies, for love always treats its enemies as no enemies at all. So let's return again to our theme that we began with in conclusion. We've got these two great themes, war with God, peace with God. Remember what the chief explained to Don Richardson in that ceremony of the peace child. I offered my son as the peace child for our tribes. As long as my son lives, there will be peace between our tribes. If he dies, war will resume. Anyone who kills a peace child will himself be killed. As with all analogies, it's not a perfect one, is it? 
because God said that this child was given for our world and it was through his death that peace with God is made available. It is peace through the death of God's son. In the Sowie tribe, when the peace child dies, war breaks out. In God's wonderful plan of salvation, when God's peace child dies, peace breaks out between God and human beings. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul reminds them of the scope of God's plan of salvation, taking up the same theme in Romans 5. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amazingly, this forgiveness is offered to those who killed the peace child. Not just to those who directly did it 2,000 years ago, but to each one of us whose sin made his death necessary. We are not killed, but offered life through God's Son whom he raised from the dead. Now God offers to each one of us here this evening the most generous peace terms. The Christian message is simply this. Be reconciled to God. You can't reconcile yourself. But God offers you generous peace terms to lay down your arms. And I simply leave you with a challenge this evening. Have you accepted those peace terms? Have you accepted God's peace child? Just as those warlike Sowie warriors as it were, laid their hands on that little child as a sign that they accepted what he represented. So we too must individually and personally accept the Lord Jesus Christ as God's peace child. And when we do, we read in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone then is in Christ, he or she becomes a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Only then can we be reconciled with God. Can we be restored to a right relationship with God? Now I simply ask you this evening, I've almost finished, in brief this evening, coming around the Lord's table, and as we do so, are you at peace with God? Or are you at war with God? Are you reconciled to God? Or are you alienated from God? Do you know God personally? Have you experienced the forgiveness that his son Jesus Christ offers? Does the Holy Spirit live within you as making you and has made you his child and you're a new person in Christ? God offers you these wonderful peace terms through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That last verse that we read in 2 Corinthians 5 is a wonderful verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, put back into a right relationship with God. It's this which we remember as we come with gratitude around the Lord's table. Maybe you need to come for the first time in repentance and faith and say, Lord, I'm laying down my arms. I'm sorry I've been a rebel all my life up to this point. I submit to your authority. I accept the terms that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made for me. Maybe you did that years and years ago. But you come again this evening with gratitude to the Lord's table. Rejoice that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Be reconciled to God. Let's focus on that as we come around the Lord's table this evening. We're going to sing a song together. Let the musicians make.